TUC Radio Archives 2002 The first nuclear chain reaction Enrico Fermi and Henry Moore The Italian physicist Enrico Fermi set off the first nuclear chain reaction in an underground rackets court at the University of Chicago. His experiment led directly to the building of the plutonium bomb that destroyed the city of Nagasaki. In retrospect, it seems unfathomable that anybody would have conducted such a dangerous experiment in the middle of a crowded city. The University of Chicago in the early 60s decided to commemorate the Fermi experiment in order to claim that the birth of the atomic age happened on their grounds on December 2nd, 1942, at half past three in the afternoon. The historian McNeil negotiated with the most famous outdoor sculptor of that time, Henry Moore, whose 12-foot bronze sculpture sits on that site today. Compared to a giant Darth Vader mask, the sculpture appears to be a combination of a skull and an atomic mushroom cloud. It stands in strange contrast to the commemorative plaque next to it that praises, quote, the controlled release of nuclear energy. And the tension between these two views of history is one topic of today's broadcast. In part one of this program, you heard a description of the Fermi experiment. The 27-foot-high atomic pile of graphite and uranium in the shape of a beehive and the crescendo of the Geiger counters as the unshielded pile went critical. In the report on the successful experiment, Fermi was given the code name The Italian Navigator, a.k.a. Columbus. Ian Ball, historian of technology and the writer of this account, points to the historic decision taken immediately after the experiment to build not just the bombs for Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but to begin mass production of nuclear weapons. The mile-long building of the Piketon Uranium Enrichment Plant and the Hanford Reactor, a testimony to that effort. Ian Ball. When Fermi's experiment was successful, they immediately decided to scale up the reactor a billion times in order to produce plutonium. Remember that the job of the Fermi reactor was to produce plutonium, which would then make uh, the bomb that came to be dropped on Nagasaki. Hiroshima was a uranium bomb. The Nagasaki bomb was a, was a plutonium bomb. Hanford was not in the business of nuclear power, certainly not. In fact, the heat, as you know from Fermi's remarks about his own pile in Chicago, the heat was a completely unwanted byproduct. And not only that, but of course the warming and the poisoning of the Columbia was and remains an ecological disaster. Now, if the Italian navigator was confident that he could prevent a catastrophic meltdown, he was also pretty confident, it seems, about the risk of low-level radioactivity. I found literally back-of-the-envelope calculations done in the archives there about dosages and so on. The atomic pile itself uh, was completely without shielding except, incidentally, some pine scaffolding. And in fact, the site was still hot when it was excavated 
uh, and we know this from the architect, when it was excavated in 67 in preparation for the installation of Atom Peace. For Atom Peace was the name that Henry Moore gave to the sculpture. A lot of his sculptures were called something Peace, Locking Peace, P-I-E-C-E, but Atom Peace, interesting. Fermi did not live to see the, the unveiling of Atom Peace, did not live to see the 25th anniversary celebrations. He died of leukemia in 1954. A year after the Chicago delegation arrived, Moore is being pressed to show them something more than just the maquette that the delegation had seen. And uh, by February, Moore was able to send photographs of the four-foot working model. And the arrival of these prints uh, in Chicago caused a storm. And that's not surprising. And in fact, it put the whole project in crisis, particularly as the funding had still not yet been secured. Now, McNeil didn't communicate any of this to Moore. Moore presumably knew that, <laughs> that this Darth Vader stormtrooper helmet, uh, mushroom cloud, dark, monstrous object would surely you know, not go through on the nod. McNeil, however, the great humanist, uh, pulled some stock phrases from the brand tub of humanists, and he used phrases like intriguing, impressive, rich bafflement, genuine yearning, awful majesty, that kind of stuff. The scientists said they knew what they saw, and Samuel Allison who'd been in charge of building the ex exponential piles back in 1942, and whose voice it was that counted down to zero at, at the Trinity test in the desert of New Mexico. Uh, he saw the photograph, and this is a quote, was strongly opposed. I am strongly opposed to placing the statue on the site of Stag Field. It would be more appropriate for such a statue to be located either at Alamogordo or Hiroshima. However, uh, McNeil was powerful, and George Beadle, the president, was on his side, and he pushed it through. Interestingly, they had to still, McNeil's compromise was to think of ways to blunt the criticism of atom peace that was circulating uh, around the campus. Um, and he came up with an interesting, uh, interesting plan. The decision was to ask Henry Moore if it would be all right if, he, if they renamed uh, the sculpture uh, nuclear energy, which would align it to the phrase on the plaque, the release of nuclear energy. The punning resonance between atom peace and atom peace was, McNeil said much later, uh, too close to be comfortable. And um, that we don't know exactly how it happened, but, but Moore in the end said, okay. He was sort of sandbagged at a lunch when he went to visit the site, and he said sort of, okay, he sort of he went along with it. It's interesting, if you look at the archives, more in the English archives, all the files are still called Atom Peace, that no concession is made to the title nuclear energy in the English files. And Moore himself always continued to call it Atom Peace. So it's shipped to Chicago via the Great Lakes, and it docks in Chicago in time for the 25th anniversary event. It's now December 1967, four years after the delegation arrives uh, just after Kennedy's assassination, just before Christmas 1963 in England. When they got to Henry Moore first in December 63, remember this is just after the 
signing uh, of the Atmospheric uh, Test Ban Treaty. And the first wave of anti-nuclearism in Britain has sort of just broken, partly because the, the Cuban Missile Crisis has been resolved and people feel that, well, maybe we can handle a, uh, a nuclear world by diplomacy, however much brinkmanship there was. It's just seven weeks before the Tet Offensive, which really marks the opening of 68. Uh, a year of insurrectionary unrest in America's cities, met, of course, by massive state violence, not least from the Chicago police at the Democratic Party convention. I would think that just a few weeks later, uh, and there would have been a far less restrained protest that greeted the pantheon of atomic scientists and bureaucrats who came to the whole event which surrounded uh, uh, the unveiling of the Moore statue was just was embedded in a much larger sort of atom fest. Still, they, they, they imagine a world of, you know, thousands of uh, nuclear power stations, the atomic establishment. This is still pre, of course, Three Mile Island and Chernobyl and so on. So there were two days of intense propaganda and international diplomacy orchestrated by the university, the Atomic Energy Commission, uh, the, the American Nuclear Society and others. Uh, you know, six Nobel scientists, uh, a whole slew of people, number of the original scientists f who were still, those who still survived from the 42 experiment. And Moore himself was, in a sense, a guest at the court of the nuclear establishment. But the barons of the military scientific complex did not quite have the stage to themselves. Looking in the, in the journalistic record here, I found an interesting photograph uh, which shows that there was a huge banner, dripping crimson, reading in capital letters, PEACE, P-E-A-C-E, -E, hung from the roof of the laboratory which stood on the west side of Ellis Street. This is the Fermi lab. And unreported in the official press coverage, uh, students for a Democratic Society, SDS, picketed the crowd with leaflets. And there's an interesting description by Richard Stern, the novelist. And he says this. The president of the University of Chicago, the widow of Enrico Fermi, that's Laura, and the sculptor Henry Moore, yanked at the tarpaulin which draped the massive coppery bronze which marked the 25th anniversary of Fermi's baptismal announcement of the atomic age. The reaction is self-sustaining, the curve is exponential. The commemorative scene might have been staged by Fellini. The guests sat under a peppermint awning. The wind threatened the ropes and flags. The Farragut High School band squirted out Sousa marches. <laughs> a little way off, cranes and earth movers stopped trenching the old football field for the peers of the new university library. So Stern then listened that day to old men reminiscing about the events of 42. And he concluded, since then, Almost everything had changed. The squash rackets court, no bigger than one sculptor's workshop, had become Oak Ridge. Chicago pile number one had led to mass murder. How was this all received? Once again, reviewers and critics of the unveiled sculpture reached for the same tropes. Moore's artwork was said to symbolize the ambiguity of the atomic age. And of course, as you know, this is a, this is a classic example of the liberal doctrine of uh, technology as neutral instrument. Good uses, bad uses. When McNeil presses him uh, 
two years earlier, he'd already sort of said explicitly what he thought it was. Quote, the upper part is connected with the mushroom cloud of a nuclear explosion. But also, it has the shape and eye sockets of a skull. The story you'll get when you go to the Moore Foundation and the Keepers of the Flame talk to you about this sculpture. They say that, yes, indeed, it's a skull. And that one particular bone informed Atom Peace, namely an elephant skull, that Moore first saw in the Hampstead Garden of his old friends, the Huxleys. This is Sir Julian Huxley, the famous biologist, and his wife, Juliet. In the early 60s, the Huxleys had gone to East Africa, and they were staying at the Mount uh, Kenya Club. In an exchange for a promise by the Huxleys to raise the poaching crisis, which was a problem, the American owner, on learning that Juliet Huxley had always coveted an elephant skull, said, you shall have one. Tomorrow, we have to shoot a rogue elephant, and I'll send you the skull. And for several years, the skull sat growing moss and uh, a wren's nest was in it too, on a rotating base in the Huxley's garden in London. And Juliet Huxley had known that Henry Moore, on one of his regular visits to the Huxley's, had been galvanized by the sight of this massive skull uh, during the time of the, in that four-year period of the Atom Peace Commission. And on a later visit, she told Moore that she'd like him to have the elephant skull. And it now dominates Henry Moore's studio, now, this, here's where it gets fascinating. In October 1970, that's to say three years after the unveiling, Moore staged, anachronistically, a series of photographs of himself at work on the maquette, which he still had, the plaster cast of Atom Peace. Going into Errol Jackson's archive, the photographer, I found the following notation. Moore asked me to make some portraits of him at work putting finishing touches to the atom piece maquette. The elephant skull was to be in the background as it was the original inspiration for the atom piece. So here we have a photo session which is obviously intended retroactively to fix the connection, but there's a problem. Moore could not possibly have seen the elephant skull before he made the original maquette shown to the Chicago boys when they came in December for the simple reason that the skull did not reach London before the spring of 1964. What are we to make of Moore's retroactive staging of this impossible inspiration? Let's ask ourselves about the images and visual tropes that might have occurred, that would have occurred, I think, to a sculpture embarking on such a commission to commemorate nuclear energy. For Moore, the CND symbol, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, of which he, of course, as I've mentioned earlier, was the founder member. To free associate on the words atomic, nuclear, in 1963 in England would be almost certainly to conjure up a CND banner and its black and white mandala, which had been invented in that form uh, by a conscientious objector uh, who'd worked on a farm in Norfolk in the Second World War, a man called Gerald Holton. Uh, he'd been approached by the Direct Action Committee Against Nuclear War, which preceded, which was a small radical cell within the, what later became the, the campaign for nuclear disarmament. And when they planned their first four-day march from London to the bomb-making factory in England, 
the weapons research establishment at Aldermaston uh, for Easter 1958. Uh, they'd gone to Gerald Holton to to coordinate the sort of design of a sort of what we would call a logo. Uh, and he invented a nuclear disarmament symbol for use with all the banners and slogans. What he came up with is interesting, and his own account is also interesting. He just said, I drew myself. The representative of an individual in despair, with hands palm outstretched outwards and downwards in the manner of Goya's peasant before the firing squad. I formalized the drawing into a line and put a circle around it. Two other motifs dominated the iconography of the British anti-nuclear movement, at the heart of which was Henry Moore himself. Don't forget. And these motifs were powerfully deployed by another graphic artist, a man, a German refugee called F.H.K. Henrion. He used collage techniques, and he came up with the canonical CND poster design. What was it? It's a collage of a human skull and a mushroom cloud. Adam Peace, so I want to say, is a condensation of the two central motifs of the campaign for nuclear disarmament, the death's head and the mushroom cloud, that Moore publicly admitted that he had seen there. The anachronistic restaging seems to aim, three years later, at naturalizing a highly charged political symbol. Conversely, I take it that Moore's sculpture, uh, as much as it's a condensation of the two motifs of cloud and skull, is, if you like, a decondensation, is a reverse, an inverse of that. It's a decondensation of the CND mandala, which you can put in correspondence with the sculpture. Basically, a tripodal figure inscribed in a circle, materialized by Moore as a skull resting on a three-legged base of animal sacrifice. The tripod is the sign in, in the classical world of animal sacrifice. So here's my conclusion. Henry Farmer, Henry Moore, scientist and artist, men with grand designs, each needing hefty patronage to scale up their models, negotiating the means essential to the realization of their projects. In the case of Fermi, the unlimited emergency powers of the secret military-industrial state were mobilized to scale up his benchtop maquettes, his lattices of uranium and graphite. In Moore's case, old Chicago money, accruing from Prairie and Slaughterhouse to the Ferguson Fund, quote, for civic art on public land, was diverted by special arrangement to a private site, because in fact, this Chicago site is on private land, so that his six-inch plaster model of atom piece could take 12-foot bronze form in front of the Fermi Institute for Nuclear Studies. I wonder, actually, if it ever crossed Moore's mind in the context of this commission, uh, that a great deal of his own wealth was already derived at just one remove from the nuclear industry. His friend, he became a friend, and, and his, his biggest collector, Joe Hirshhorn, many of you will have been to the Hirshhorn Museum in DC, that Hirshhorn himself had made his own vast 
fortune from the Blind River uranium deposits in Canada. Another was the public health disaster, an epidemic of lung cancer caused by the exposure of uranium miners to the radioactive daughters of radon, of radon gas. U.S. bomb production in the Cold War and since, driven at a furious pace by the Atomic Energy Commission, negligent, very negligent of workers' health, has probably cost the lives of thousands of American, Canadian, and especially Native American miners. And of course, the disaster of Blind River and the nuclear complex is not over. To the question, where did Fermi's experiment end, there is no answer. For one thing, the half-lives of these elements must be measured in thousands of years. The deliberate release of nuclear energy, quote, mostly on the lands of indigenous peoples, has created poisoned landscapes around the globe. About 2,000 tests were conducted in the first 50 years of the atomic age, an average of one nuclear explosion every nine days. And across the colonial spaces of Central Asia, of Algeria, Australia, the Pacific, India, and the intramontane west of the United States, the legacy of Fermi and the weaponeers now stretches an immense geography of sacrifice. And finally, what sort of work does Moore's atom piece perform today, sitting on the old site of Chicago Pile Number 1? For one thing, it speaks back to the inscription, to that plaque, to its uh, beautifully restrained and well-worded mendacity. On December the 2nd, 1942, man achieved here the first self-sustaining chain reaction and thereby initiated the controlled release of nuclear energy. It continues to embarrass the university, in fact, and the nuclear establishment. It's actually proven quite unassimilable to their project. It's not become a site of world historic pilgrimage, no. The crouched embryo, which McNeil tried to read there, that's he continued for years to see a crouched embryo in there. That's to say, something that would figure the birth of the atomic age in Chicago against the claims of Alamogordo and Hiroshima was a private fantasy. On the other hand, Moore's sculpture keeps attention focused on the high centers of scientific reason, of containment, and away from the distant zones of sacrifice. This inability of Atom Peace to achieve a stable reading might have been illuminating to the administration of the United States Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, when in the same year as it was moved in Hiroshima, 1991, it commissioned a panel of specialists, material scientists, architects, artists, others, to design a sculpture that would sit on top of the U.S. government's proposed permanent nuclear waste repository. The remit of the panel was to produce it, in other words, to do something which Henry Moore had been trying to do, perhaps, or others were, you know, this was going to be the sculpture that would do the job. That it would be a design that would be legible, and this was the remit, by inhabitants of the American West 10,000 years from now. The result was one of the stranger government documents. <laughs> a report entitled, and I quote, Expert judgment on markers to deter inadvertent human intrusion into the waste isolation pilot plant. One suggestion was a plaque. <laughs> a plaque reading, danger. Poisonous radioactive waste buried here. Do not dig until AD 12,000. 
The linguist on the panel had to point out that no language, let alone civilization, had ever lasted 10,000 years. No plaque could possibly pass the longevity test. Other proposals included, quote, the landscape of thorns, one square mile of randomly spaced basalt spikes, 80 feet high, erupting from the ground. Another, the black hole, a vast pad of black concrete that would absorb so much heat it would be impossible to get near it. Uh, the menacing earthworks, as if somehow by saying menacing, you know, it's going to do the job. A large empty square surrounded by 50-foot-high earthen berms jolting outwards. Perhaps the most intriguing idea was not sculptural at all, but the endowment of a nuclear priesthood that would pass the taboo down the generations by word of mouth. No mention was made of the fact that the world's first official nuclear waste site, where the remains of CP1, Chicago Partner 1, are buried, a place called Plot M, in the Palos Forest Preserve outside Chicago, again, also quite close to O'Hare, uncannily rehearses the proposed EPA marker. I've been there, it's an interesting place. A dressed granite cube lying in the middle of a grassy clearing bears the mildly worded provocation, caution, do not dig. At the Chicago site itself, and here's where I end, what endures is the force field generated between plaque and monument, a contradiction that could not be resolved by linguistic fiat, despite more permitting, of course, his American commissioners to retitle the sculpture once it was in situ nuclear energy. Henry Moore himself, of course, declined to speak that day in 1967. The stage belonged to Glenn Seaborg and other atomic salesmen to make kitsch scientific claims about clean, safe, limitless power. Meanwhile, we are living in the immensely long shadow of Fermi's experiment, and atom piece, skull on blasted tripod, stands testimony to that sacrifice. Thank you. This was part two of a two-part story on Enrico Fermi and the beginning of the nuclear age from the timeless archives of TUC Radio. You heard a chapter from the upcoming book, The Long Theft, by the Irish historian of technology Ian Ball, recorded in March 2002 at a series of events where scientists and historians met with a small circle of friends. They gave previews of projects that had not yet appeared in any public space. In the same venue, Ian Ball had earlier given an intriguing view of the 19th century Luddites. Who were the Luddites? Well, of course, the context of the Luddites is very important. It was the world historical transformation, the process uh, that liberals call industrialization. It has many moments to it, including urbanization, for example. The mills, the automation of uh, production that began in a serious way in the 18th century, was the context in which this important moment of resistance occurred. These were people who took very large hammers and smashed the power looms. Now, to be Luddite is what? Well, of course, it is to be mindlessly against progress. Uh, there's a marvelous speech, the only speech that Lord Byron uh, ever gave in the House of Lords was in defense of the Luddites. At the moment of the promulgation of the bill uh, to make machine breaking a capital offense. That's also a TUC radio program. 
He is co-editor of Resisting the Virtual Life and author of the 2011 History of the Bicycle, entitled The Green Machine. You can hear this program again on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. That's tucradio.org. Look under Newest Programs. While you're there, you can subscribe to weekly free podcasts. My name is Maria Geleiden. Thank you for listening.